Hi, you're listening to the Classroom and Culture Podcast from Epic Media Partners, where we go deep on all things faith, culture, creativity, tech, and innovation as they relate to education and learning. Please see the show notes for additional info and details discussed in today's podcast. Hey, Monroe here. So I want to start by giving you guys a heads up on some new items we've got coming down the pike for you, our classroom and culture listeners. First up, I'd like to introduce the Epic Friday Five. It's a short email list of things that we find interesting um, and or relevant during the week that we'd like to share. Categories include things like school leaders to check out, books we're reading, scripture and devotional content, trends, and more. It's just our take on some good stuff you guys can carry into the weekend. To subscribe, just visit epic2.com forward slash pages forward slash contact. That's epic2.com forward slash pages forward slash contact. Next on our new items list, we are putting together a new Q&A episode, and we'd like to build this episode around your questions. This is something that we plan to do occasionally. So if you'd like to hear Mike Zavada address and discuss topics like safe school reopening, best practices in virtual learning, how to increase your revenue footprint with uncertain enrollments, or anything else you may have an interest in, we'd love to hear from you. To submit your questions, just call 833-GO-EPIC-2. State your first name only, where you're calling from, and your question. That's 833-GO-EPIC-2. State your first name, where you're calling from, and your question. Once again, that's... No, I'm just kidding. I won't do that to you. Hey, it's all in the show notes. Okay, here we go. Today, we talk with Gene Frost. Dr. Frost serves as the executive director of the Wheaton Academy Foundation and the Wheaton Academy Institute, and also served as head of school at Wheaton Academy from 2006 to 2018. He's an ordained minister who began his career as a youth pastor and Bible teacher in a Christian school then spent 22 years in the business world. His diverse business experience includes being a pit trader on the Chicago Board of Options Exchange, a corporate trainer, and a human resources executive. His last decade in business was spent as president and CEO of an educational mentoring and software company. And also, he's been a leader on various nonprofit and corporate boards. Gene earned his undergraduate degree in religious studies from Wheaton College, his divinity degree from Northern Baptist Theological Seminary, and his doctorate in education from Northern Illinois University. Lastly, Gene is the author of the book, Learning from the Best, Growing Greatness in the Christian School, and is founder of the Best Practices Conference for Aspiring Schools, which takes place via Zoom video conferencing on June 22nd through the 24th. And you can find all the details at wa-institute.org forward slash conference. That's wa-institute.org forward slash conference. And we'll make sure to have this info in the show notes as well. This interview is packed with information and covers a wide range of topics from comparing what Dr. Frost calls the old common school model with the new mindset of the uncommon school model, as well as best practices regarding things like leadership and teacher evaluation and training teachers to lead off the map. 
So strap in and enjoy our conversation with Dr. Gene Frost. Welcome, Dr. Frost. So excited to have you here today. And the way we want to kick this off is by asking what I call the most important question of the day, right? Um, So say when you're not inundated with your responsibilities as um, executive director of the Wheaton Academy Foundation or the Wheaton Academy Institute, what is your go-to band, artist, or type of music that you like to listen to? Uh, Well, we... The uh, podcast might be over right now because uh, my answer is going to be very disappointing to Monroe. Um, I knew you were going to ask that, so I reflected on that. And I, I'm afraid I'm a product of a home of the 50s and 60s that uh, uh, believed all rock and roll was of the devil. So I grew up listening to Franny and Teicher. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, Horst Jankowski, uh, Roger Williams, uh, theme music. And... Um, the power of adolescent formation is I'm still listening to it. So um, my wife calls it elevator music. She has no time for it. I get only listen to it in my car. But um, I also then uh, got a transistor radio that I kept under my pillow when the uh, British invasion happened. And so I know all the, uh, the great uh, classic rock bands all that time, all the way up through the 70s. And I'm locked in my I'm locked in my adolescence. Those are my two go-to. I listen to uh, oldies, uh, Uncle Brucey, and uh, I listen to a theme uh, schmaltzy music and get sentimental. I absolutely love that. And you know what? Don't discount that era, man, because Rodgers and Hammerstein they inspired the Beatles, right? And and as far as the transistor radio era goes, being at Wheaton, I'm wondering if you were the kid that was listening late at night to like WSM because they had the reach. Or, you know, it's funny, I'm not sure if you'll be familiar uh, with this name, but we've worked together for over 20 years and we're, our families are very close. His name is Dwayne Eddy. And Peter Gunn and Rebel Rouser. And now he was a Rebel Rouser. He was a rock and roller. But when you talk to Dwayne, uh, he used to grow up listening to all of these great AM stations that had this huge reach, you know, and that reach would only grow late at night. And that's how he grew up on the Grand Ole Opry and all of these great shows. And that uh, basically introduced him to a lot of the artists that influenced him. Well, it was WLS uh, Radio WLS. in Chicago that had the top three at 10 o'clock and by then I was in bed and it was under my pillow so I could find out if it was Herman's Hermits were uh, catching up with the Dave Clark Peter Five Noon. and all that stuff. So, Yeah, I love that stuff. So, um, you know, WLS, I remember I loved WLS, but we could not get WLS until after five o'clock in the afternoon when everybody was starting to, the different stations were starting to sign off. Then we could pick up WLS and oh, I loved it. Yeah. 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 Well, it's a, hey, that's great. It uh, it kind of confirms in my mind why I'm excited about adolescent education, because it is such a formative time of your life that will shape the rest of your life. So Christian education in that junior high, senior high level, I think is just so critical to whom you become and what uh, what your tastes are and just influences you in more ways than you realize. Absolutely. And hey, some of us never grow out of that stage. Yeah. So, <laughs> right. Well, that's a, that's a great jumping in point for me and, and your passion for Christian education comes through and you had a long tenure as head of school at Wheaton and uh, we are at a crossroads, I think, in talking with you a few days ago in education and the use of technology and learning from remote because of the pandemic. And I was just curious as a starter, um, 
where you think we are headed with education and some of the things that you're seeing. I, I know you're a big proponent. We're going to get to that in a second about school leaders thinking about great business principles. But w- where do you think are some of the early developments out of coming out of the pandemic that we should be looking at? Well, it, it's sort of um, sometimes it takes national crises for people to actually recognize the end of an era. And um, I've been speaking, oh, probably the last, I don't know, three, four or five years on the end of the common school era. And, um, you know, I kind of set it up as, are you selling buggy whips or Teslas? And um, I used the parallel with the, when the engine, the combustion engine came in the early 1900s to replace the uh, horse-powered, literally horse-powered economies. And even the Wright brothers at the turn of the century thought the combustion engine would never amount to anything. It was too unreliable and loud and noisy and stuff. So nobody really gave it much, but obviously over the next 40 years, it just increasingly took over. And um, the picture I have when I do my slide presentation is, there was a finally a moment when the horse powered era was over. And I show a slide up on the screen and it's a bunch of horses pulling cannons. And I explained that that's the Polish artillery going out to meet the Panzers. It was over. After wow. World War II, it was over. There was no more horse-powered economy. Although my dad was plowing fields in the 30s with a horse. But there was eventually a time in which it was over. So I think what's been happening is the common school the great invention of 150 years ago, everybody gets an education, one size fits all, high conformity, authorities, whatever the teacher says is right. That whole era has served us well until now. And the school today is no longer, uh, the common school is no longer suitable. And um, I've been talking about that and why and, and how we've gone from a loyalty customer in the Christian schools. They send, my parents sent me to a Christian school because it was the right thing to do. Nobody's doing that anymore. They send kids to school because there's a value proposition. There's something that that school will advantage their children and they'll pay for it. It's a a value proposition. So that loyalty to value, that um, conformity to independence. I mean, it used to be one size fits all. Now every parent wants education custom made for their child's unique gifts, abilities, and needs. And so I, I was talking about this. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And um, there's been three books that came out in the last uh, year. Uh, I think one came out a couple years ago. And it's sort of like that picture of the Polish uh, artillery. (laughs) Uh, Finally made it clear. One book is Marching Off the Map um, by, let me see, I got it right here on my shelf. Um, Let's see, um, Tim Elmore. Are you familiar with that, Michael? Tim Elmore? I'm familiar with him. I'm not familiar with that book yet. I haven't gotten around well, to it. He's, well, he's, he's done a study of our kids today and how different they are. Um, you know, they don't have transistor radios under their pillows anymore. No. Um, it's a whole different generation. And he said that um, all our pedagogy, you have to throw out the window and start over again. And he's basically, the marching off the map is the picture of uh, Alexander the Great when he came to the edge of the earth, the known um, earth at the time. He had conquered all the the known uh, cultures, he had to march off the map, literally. He had to take map makers with him because he was going into territory that had never been um, uh, traveled before. And he, there, Tim Elmore makes the case that our schools have gone past the map. 
There is no map for Generation um, Z. There is no map for coronavirus education. There is no map. And I'm getting to your question about the coronavirus. Uh, it just proves that we're off the map in our education. And the other book that came out is Canoeing the Mountains. Are you familiar with that? Christian leadership book. Not Again, yet. take it taken from history of the Lewis and Clark expeditions. Uh, Lewis and Clark were going to find the water passageway over the west, just like there's one in the east up the Ohio River and stuff. And when they got to that, where that passage was supposed to be, they found the Rocky Mountains and they had <laughs> canoes. <laughs> they had to canoe the mountains. <laughs> and um, so, uh, again, leadership is off the map. We are leading in, in a terrain that we've never been in before. We're going where nobody's ever gone before. And then the final book is uh, the classic Who Moved the Cheese? I don't know if you remember that. We all read that in the 90s. Um, the book that he wrote just prior to his death was Out of the Maze. So we are off the map. We're in the mountains. We're off the maze and God sends coronavirus. So to me, that's the picture of those rumbling uh, uh, Polish army. It, it, it's finally over. The common school era is gone. And now we have the uncommon school era. I call it the uncommon Christian school. And we've got to customize education for every child. We've got to treat our parents like customers. We've got to give value. And if we do, our schools will prosper. If we still sit back like the public schools and expect people to show up, we're gonna die. Well, you mentioned the customer model and we talked a little bit the other day about uh, many of us think that education should be run more with like the best management principles from business, more like business. And a lot of educators, they uh, don't like that. They don't like the commoditization of, um, you know, schooling, and they don't like thinking of it in those terms. But to be successful, I've seen successful school leaders have to use best practices, best management practices from business. And we just had Sidney Finkelstein, a uh, Dartmouth business professor who wrote about super bosses and talent and and I think you are coming out of the same perspective and we're going to talk about evaluation but talk to us a little bit how you see a school leader's mindset to take them into this mountains into you know the new the uncommon what should their mindset be and how did you develop that as a school leader well the, the big difference is you don't have the answers anymore you have to be in a discovery mindset. You have to be in a problem, problem solver's mindset. You have to be um, saying what will work. Um, before in the old days, and that was the old map. We, you know, we were the expert. We told you how to teach fourth grade. You told them how to teach fourth grade. You went and taught fourth grade, and that was fourth grade. We don't know these fourth graders anymore. They're a whole new generation. That teacher's unique set of gifts that they bring to that class. If that teacher can sing, there's gonna be a repertoire available to him or her that's gonna not be available to the person who can't sing. I mean, it's as, use, it's as unique as the teacher, it's as unique as the classroom, as the needs of the individuals in this classroom. It's a whole new world. I think the, the big thing that I used to kind of skirt around is I used to say, well, our schools is not, aren't a business, but we can learn some things. I used to be trying to soft sell business principles. That's over, it is a business. 
And until you get that in your head, you're going to be in trouble. And the public school, we do not realize how much the common school has infiltrated the Christian school. The Christian school is a common school in, in many respects. And it's sort of like the Soviet Union. It's, it's a, the, the common school is, is a monopoly. The public schools are the perfect common school. They're monopoly. They have to do it all the same way. They don't have any flexibility. They're really limited in what they can do. The good news is that's our competition. We can do anything that our parents want us to do to educate their kids, especially in a Christian tradition to, to become Christ-like. And once we realize that we're in a different business than the public schools, um, I, I'm really, like I say, really in this past year, I don't apologize anymore for it. Parents will not go to your school unless you have a value proposition. If you have a value proposition, they will pay for that. I've had emails sent to me and say, this is the most valuable thing in my life. We are going through bankruptcy, but I want you to know that our number one bill we are going to pay is for this school because we know the investment we're making in our child for eternity. That investment, I mean, kid, parents are paying $7,000 to have a kid on a hockey team because they value it. They should value our Christian schools more than that. And how are we producing that kind of value? We've got to think that way. We've got to say, what is it going to advantage your child to be in our school? Car, um, I think it was, um, try to think who just did the recent survey with ACSI. Barno did it. And they said, the parents that are looking at your school are looking at how you're going to advantage their child. And when you think of it that way, rather than, oh, you've got to come to our school and we'll have the pat formula for you, that's not going to sell. Parents aren't going to pay for that. Wonderful. I love what you said about the public schools all having to do the same thing. And we're seeing that now actually going down to the least common denominator. There have been major, even affluent school systems in the country who did not start remote learning because they were afraid that certain members of the community wouldn't have Wi-Fi or a computer. And while on one hand, that that's noble that you want to bring everybody along and we want to bring everybody along to Christ as Christians, you can't stop the learning just because a few people don't have it. Let's start the learning and let's get those people along when you can. And uh, that is an advantage that our private schools who had a good plan in place did. Have you, you have some examples or some people? Well, that the, the, the flexibility that our Christian schools have gives them such a distinct advantage. Um, the school that I was head of um, had started distance learning in 2014. And we started it because we wanted to not have waste time on snow days and teacher in services. So we went to... On, we called it home learning days. <laughs> and uh, kids hated them because they had to work harder on those days than the old snow, you know, the going to school. And um, so we've been doing that since 2014. And being able to deliver the education in the home during snow days or in services. So when this, um, we got the COVID uh, stay at home on Friday, we started Monday morning with stay at home learning. One of our teachers had every class on video over the time frame. And again, uh, Christian schools can do that and they could be at the front of the class in innovation and in pedagogy and curriculum development and um, and they're not held back by the limitations of the you know teacher contracts and the public school as you said the lowest common denominator and um, this is a real advantage and talk about advantage for parents that your kids are getting educated um, here in Illinois uh, 
to help the public schools out, they said nobody has to learn anything till the end of March. You don't even have to go to school because nobody was able to do it. So they wanted to let everybody off the hook. And then there was no tests. And then there was no grading. <laughs> and they just kept dropping and dropping the, the requirements. And all our kids finished strong and didn't miss a beat. And that's right. what the Christian school can do. I think there's also another um, interesting development that churches, many of the strong churches also that our families are members of went digital. And so you have two elements supporting this digital education or learning or worship that, um, you know, and kids in secular environments, they don't necessarily have that. Like uh, sports league, it was really hard for sports league to go digital. So my kids flag football, they all got canceled and all that stuff. But the churches kept meeting and small groups kept meeting and youth groups kept meeting. And so uh, that's all part of this building into the Christian schools that our, our parents have come to expect. So and we're going to be right. able to build on those innovations. And you know what? I don't know what they're going to look like because we're, we're off the map and in the mountains. And we'll see what they come up with. But the innovative Christian school leaders will maximize those and be able to leverage those to the advantage of their students. Great. So let's, let's talk about something else that's near and dear to your heart, and that is evaluation, the, what we called the other day the dirty word in, uh, in Christian school education or education in general. But you have some good thoughts on evaluation and how we can use this time now with uncertainty, a little bit of economic uncertainty across our schools, and this changing of mindsets to really be purposeful about evaluation? Well, there's really two different strains on that. One is just the pure um, need for better evaluations in our, in our, in our Christian schools. I, I did not realize um, just how little evaluation was being done in our schools. In fact, I've, I've talked to some educational researchers who are gonna actually do some research on how much teachers are evaluated anecdotally, many teachers can tell you that they go years without an evaluation. And um, I didn't really realize that until we started. Um, actually, we came up with an evaluation system, very rigorous evaluation system at Wheaton Academy because we decided we were going to pay teachers based on their performance. And if you're going to pay someone their livelihood, you better have a very accurate instrument that they agree is accurate and that you believe is accurate and will determine the, the pay for this teacher. So we spent several years building a, uh, started out with 53 rubrics um, based uh, um, evaluations. We got it down to 42 um, involving student uh, feedback, uh, uh, supervisor, principal, uh, peer, yourself. And we worked out a wonderful system finally where the teacher says, you're right, that's, that's a great description of who I am. That's a great description of my strengths and weaknesses and what I need to work on. You know, so we finally came to that uh, consensus that this is really who they were and what they need to work on to be a better teacher and, and their, the pathway forward. And we were able to pay them on that basis. And they even did a survey afterwards that they all liked that system much better than the old step system where everybody just moves up, gets a pay increase every year for being around and and taking whatever courses they took, basket weaving or anything else. And um, so they all liked the new system and it worked. And so we thought, this is great, this is gold, we'll give this to other schools. And I found that it wasn't catching on and I, I wasn't being used. And 
even whether you wanted to pay your teachers or not, it was a great system for teacher improvement. And um, but when I finally realized um, in our research with the schools, I found out that not much evaluation is going on, certainly not rigorous evaluation. And the time it took to get this evaluation right um, really was an investment by the administration and their teachers and their teachers development. And um, when the rubber meets the road or things get hectic at school, what's the one thing you can drop? Well, I wasn't able to get into your room this year. You're doing a great job. I know you're great. You were great last year. I know you'll be great. I mean, that's that's the one. The teacher loves that. The administrator loves that. Everybody's happy when you don't do evaluations. <laughs> Nobody's complaining that you didn't come in and, you know, evaluate me and show me where I'm coming up short. It's So what I found was the great elastic uh, stretch in the, in the private school was, Hey, you know what? We'll just skip evaluation, your evaluation this year. You'll be happy. I'll be happy. We'll save time and we'll do it next year. And I didn't realize how prevalent that was. And so when you go into a heavy and rigorous evaluation system, it's breaking down that kind of um, shortcut that maybe many administrators or schools take um, because there's lots to do. And we all are busy people and there's you know, the uh, tyranny of the urgent. So I found out that I, I've got to go back and start selling the value of an evaluation and how that shapes behavior and how that makes great teachers. Um, and let not, don't let teachers just get stuck in the old paradigms, but help move them forward. So we have a job to do about building evaluations before we can even think about paying our teachers. And that's the other thing I found. I, I used to say, I think we're one of the only, you know, few schools in the country that purely paved by performance, I have not yet found another one. So hopefully this podcast will pull somebody else. Now, some people say they do it by giving bonuses or um, having, you know, stretching their um, their scales and stuff. But I'm saying from point zero, your pay is completely determined on your performance. And I've, I haven't found anybody else that does that yet. And, and they do that in every other business in America because it works because it's efficient, because it's effective. And here again, we're in the common school movement of being the lowest common denominator and being tied to a public school union contract and not being able to reward our best teachers at the top of our scale. And, um, you know, it, it, working against ourselves, our, some of our highest paying people are just the ones that we haven't gotten rid of yet, you know? Okay, CNC audience, listen up. So maybe you haven't landed on that new remote learning solution. You know, that special platform that was intentionally built for teachers and students to operate within each school's unique culture, keeping everyone up to date and on the same page. You know, the one that will allow you to settle into whatever that new normal may be next year with the assurance that whatever disruptive event may occur, you and your students are prepared you know, that platform. Well, look no further. Epic has created a learning platform complete with a robust, 
content management system for schools and teachers that's connected to a mobile app to engage students in a way that's relevant to them and makes curriculum content come to life. At Epic, we not only have a platform that you can upload your existing curriculum to, we also offer a wide range of biblical worldview content and curriculum through dynamic and educationally sound lessons that parachute into your students' world and speak their language. Teachers and school leaders don't miss out on the opportunity to supercharge your curriculum or your advisory sessions with Epic. We would love to be your learning solution. To request a demo and discuss how we can partner with you, please contact anyone from our school engagement team at epic2.com. That's epic2.com. So funny you mention that in my consulting practice, I do uh, basically third party consulting, advising to uh, teachers, instructional coaching. It's not quite evaluation, um, but uh, I was in a call recently and the principal came on and she said, well, I've been told that we have to do evaluations this year, but I didn't get to them. So what we're going to have to do is do a self-evaluation I'm going to give you a form and then I'm going to respond back if I think what you wrote is uh, feasible, accurate. And, uh, you know, it goes to your point, right? It's the last thing she had good. He, he or she had good intentions and now it's May and we COVID hit and you're not getting there. Well, I, uh, I remember when I taught my um, principal came up to me one year and hadn't been able to get in my room. And he said, Gene, I just need you to know, I think you had a great year. I didn't hear one parent complain about you. Yeah, that gets... I met the, I met the bar. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think I've said this in another podcast. Um, I had a relatively young teacher who was looking to grow, and um, he left us after two or three years. And on the exit interview, I said, is there anything I could have done better in, in helping you? And... He said, oh, I just wish you would have observed me more. I was expecting more feedback. And, uh, I, you know, I didn't get it from you and I uh, was just hoping that you would have done that. And, and wow. so that's important. Well, and, and today's um, millennials are not necessarily in it for the money, but for the self-actualization, for the satisfaction, for the professional, for making a difference in kids' lives. And they want to know that they're making that difference. And um, I had a... I spoke a few years back and talked about Jim Collins' first point of first who and how you've got to get your faculty and, and raise the bar. And unless you have evaluation, you can't do that. And um, so this administrator went back to school and that spring and he gave us he gave a speech says, hey, we're going to up the ante here. We're going to reward great teaching. We're we're going to you know do the best for our kids. And I you know, and so he gave him a speech about where they're going to go as a school. And his two best young teachers came to him and said we were both going to quit because the standards were so low and everybody does their own thing. You know, he said, but if you really mean what you just said, we're sticking. And um, you, you self-select. We actually chase away the best teachers when we have a low standard and don't do the evaluation and have the rigor we need um, to produce the value proposition for the kids that the parents want. It's all it's all fits together. You know, it seems like so many of these things are carryovers from that old common school model mindset. Uh, 
Yes. So in terms of the uphill battle uh, in, in, in changing that mindset and equipping them to, to, to walk off the map, I mean, I, I, how do you not throw up your hands and go, wait a minute, this is actually an opportunity and I'm digging in? Well, that's back to, your, that's back to leadership. Um, I, I like the Jim Collins model. I, I go back to it again and again. Um, Jim Collins basically just went into the best businesses and said, how'd they get there? And I did a book oh, several years ago now going into schools and seeing if Jim Collins' principles worked. <laughs> Guess what? Point for point, they worked. Every great school had a great leader. That was Collins' point number one, leadership, level five leadership, humble, um, self-sacrificing um, uh, leadership. Number two, they had the right people in the right seats on the bus and they got them in the right seats in the bus. And um, I go to these schools and they were rigorous. Uh, for Wheaton Academy to turn around 30 years ago, we had to, re we had to actually um, fire a third of the faculty. We did a due process, by the way. <laughs> but it took a couple of years, but we, a third of our 15 teachers were not up to the standards. And so we had to ask them to leave. The middle third all left on their own within the next two years because we raised the standards so high. So we were left with the five best teachers and we kept hiring in at the top. First two, then what? And we got the great teachers to build great programs and our school went from 200 to 650 where it is now with a waiting list. But it's all the teachers. It's all finding those best teachers and having the standards. But you had to have a leader to set the pace, to attract the troops, to lead um, off the map. So my next question there would be then, obviously administrators need to be equipped, right? To know how to recruit those great teachers. I, can you speak to that um, in terms of? Yeah, I will. Um, everybody thinks it's, it's um, pay scale. Um, when we started out, we were at the bottom of the pay scale. We were a struggling school. Um, but if you think about Teach for America, Teach for America is pulling the best students out of Ivy League schools to go into the worst schools for almost no pay because there's a vision. You'll make a difference. And we need to, we need to recruit based on vision and where our school is going. And we were able to paint a vision for our school and attract young program builders, life changers, kid magnets, and get them on board. And we were able to grow as a school. And our pay scale went from 60% of the public to 90% of the public. We didn't start there. It took us 20 years to get there. But, you know, I'm just saying you have to paint a vision. I, I was in a conference once and, and a, a head of school raised his hand. He said, I found the perfect athletic director. He could just make a real difference in our school. But why would he want to come to my little school in my little town? How can I get him to come? And I said, you can't. Your little school and your little town isn't going to inspire the greatest um, athletic director. I said, but if you promise him to build the greatest athletic program in your state, and that you'll support him and show him what he can do with the kids that you're going to bring him, I think you have a chance. It's all painting the vision, and that's the leader's job. And um, yeah. people want to work for that. People want to have uh, make a difference, set a vision. So recruiting those top teachers is not a matter of uh, money or uh, to start with anyways, <laughs> but it is a setting a vision and finding visionaries and um, find people who want to make a difference. And rather than who's looking for a job. And the other thing we do is the, the public school model, when do they start looking for teachers? Now. Yeah. They wait till all the contracts, all the union people are protected, and then they look for the leftovers. When do Christian school teachers 
schools look for teachers. Now, they take the common school model. When is an NFL team looking at the team of the future? <laughs> Years away. They, they have a depth chart. They, have a, they're, you don't, they don't show up on draft night and say, what do you think? You know, who do you think would be a good – who do you think is going to be left over in the third round? Maybe we can get somebody. Hmm. No, you plan that. You want the best players on your team, and, and schools should be thinking the same way. Schools should be looking 24-7, 12 months a year for the greatest teachers. Say, hey, you'd be a great teacher at my school. Can I talk to you? Can I yeah, – and start recruiting. And some of those people will take years to win over. But you've got to be pulling those best teachers, the teacher in the public school that's being frustrated by the conformity. Start talking to them now. What would make it work for them? Why could this make a difference? A young person coming out of um, the best person in the depart education department at a Christian college should be coming to our Christian schools, not uh, not the common school. So it's a it's a whole recruiting strategy that's not the common school, which is you wait till spring and find the leftovers. That's great, great point. Um, the you had staying power as a head of school. And there may be some new head of schools. Maybe they're making the transition this year or for next year. What would you have them do now to, I mean, you, you've got some boldness to you and you led boldly. Um, some might not be ready right away. And sometimes they say, don't do anything your first year as head of school. How would you guide somebody new coming into a position or who's in their first year to make these bold moves that we need to go off the map? Well, I I didn't do much my first year either as a leader because um, the um, one thing that is still true for a school is you're on a one-year contract and there's not much you can do. Um, I try to get my business people, I, I was in business 20 years and hey, if I wanted to reorganize my company, I could, I could uh, call a meeting Monday morning and it was done. I could fire and hire and reorganize and you could be a whole new company on Monday. You can't do that in education. I try to tell uh, business leaders who sit on boards who are impatient. I said, think of this as a baseball team. You've got all the contracts. You've got all the players. You've got to play the season out. And you only really have a chance once a year to do much changing. So there is a little different calendar, even at, no matter what school you are, the common or uncommon school, that we've got to think in terms of years. And that's why you need a long-range plan. And that's why you need to move in the direction and have a target but for a new leader, that probably is smart in that you've got to get that team to perform at the top level. You don't start out by saying, well, I'm going to get rid of you at the end of the year. Now work hard for me. You know, that's not a good coach. And, yeah, we're going to trade you to, the, you know, to, to Philadelphia next year, but why are you giving me everything you got in the meantime? Um, so, anyways, schools are a little different in that I'm just saying if you're new to education, you do want to win. Um, and and long-term success is going to be win confidence of um, the people you lead but also my big tip is um, be staple to your board um, you bet you have to be in sync with your chairman of your board um, I when anybody tells me what's your long-term stability in a school is being connected to your board uh, many administrators kind of treat the board as a separate entity and, and interact kind of politely and you can't do that you've got to be um, in bed, married to your board, and have a relationship of uh, their confidence in you, your confidence in them. And I think more heads of schools get in trouble by getting crosswise with their board than any other um, any other piece of the formula. 
And um, so that's my big tip on just being successful or long-term is, is your connection to your board and uh, the loyalty you have to them and they have to you. Um, you mentioned what can you do to pr promote long-term um, terms as a head of school is to bring up the talent within the building itself. If you can hire from within, statistics tell us that five, four out of five heads that were hired from within will be there in five years. 80%, if you can hire, find the person inside and hire them, they will be there in five years. If you hire somebody from the outside, four out of five will be gone in five years. You'll have churned 80% of those heads. So my, my real formula for big term thinking is every school should be growing the leaders in the building. I, I was head of school of the school I went to and I taught in. So in some ways I, I just grew up in that school and became the head. My replacement was my principal for 12 years. He has people under him that he's grooming. In fact, two of them gone off to head other schools. So continually build up leadership in your building because when you hire those people, you know everything about them and they know everything about you. And the chance for success is, is high. When you recruit from outside, it's a little bit of a dating game. You're not quite sure what you're getting and they're not quite sure <laughs> what they got. <laughs> and um, so you eliminate that by um, trying to build and raise talent in your own building. And that's the thing I really try to encourage people to do. Question, is your school using best practices? Christian schools today have the opportunity to jump to the head of the line in the educational landscape by promoting and executing best practices. Parents today are willing to pay for value if they see it being demonstrated in the Christian school. The Best Practices Conference for the Christian School is designed to allow schools with proven best practices to share those practices with other Christian schools. We believe that you and your senior staff members will be challenged, motivated, and enabled to launch or perfect best practices in your school. This year, the Best Practices Conference for the Christian School will be held on June 22nd through the 24th and will take place through Zoom video conferencing. For details on breakouts, presenters, and to register, go to wa-institute.org forward slash conference. That's wa-institute.org forward slash conference. Hey, we'll see you there. So accompanying that, if you have people inside the same culture for a long time, you can't have them like the boiling frog, though, not understanding what else is out there, right? So you, alongside that, you have your people growing with ideas from the outside. Can you just share a little bit about the executive um, coaching that goes on at Wheaton and for your top tier leadership and other principles that you have? Yeah, um, it's, it's just using the, again, it's using the business model. Many business leaders are finding that they need coaching. It's exploding. There's a lot of CEOs and uh, C-level leadership is, are getting coached. And they're basically getting coached to how to lead off the map. <laughs> and so we have to go into our Christian schools and give them the same kind of coaching. And my, um, 
my successor was actually getting coaching as he was taking over. He was having individual coaching on his leadership style, his strengths, his weaknesses, how to set the agendas, how to look forward, how to do planning. He was getting executive coaching. It was so impactful for him. He actually had that coach set up a package for our entire top tier of leaders in our school, 10 people, our principals, our curriculum directors, our department heads, and they're all getting executive coaching. And um, I've actually taken that into some of my consulting um, where I'm working with a school right now that I have an executive coach and myself, he's coaching on leadership. I'm coaching on this, um, how to run a Christian school and the best practices for running a Christian school. But he's, he's providing the team building and the executive coaching, just like you'd have in an organization. So you can maximize your leadership and also stretch them to, as you say, innovate and go off the map as leaders. I'm excited about this model. I, I, I'm going to try to take it to more schools, actually. I just, it's something that's new. And, uh, and my predecessor is the one that came up with it. I didn't come up with it. He said, boy, this executive coaching has made a difference in my leadership, and I want it for my team. And I thought, man, that could work for a lot of Christians. That's schools. awesome. Let's talk, uh, shift gears to best practices. You, I think, maybe got it from Jim Collins in, in your writing your book, but you also lead every summer – the best practices in Christian school education. Uh, I was fortunate enough to attend that at Mount Pisgah in Atlanta this past summer after wanting to go many years when it was at Wheaton. Can you share in your mind what best practices are, how you develop the, the conference and, and what people can do for the conference coming up? Yeah, I, I love the concept of best practices because it's not married to a curriculum or a philosophy or a particular pedagogical approach. And it's just kind of um, democratic. In other words, um, you're just sharing things that worked in your school with other schools, and they're free to either take and run with those or modify them to their own uh, school system. Um, so many times in, um, when we deliver uh, professional development, it's a, it's a canned approach, and it's kind of you have to buy the whole package or the whole curriculum or something like that. And this is just a chance for Christian schools to just share their best practices with other Christian schools. And we found even for ourselves, we had a lot of schools wanting to visit. We thought rather than just visit during a school day and kind of get the crumbs as you kind of walk around and stuff, we'd say, let's, we spent three days in the summer inviting you to come and we'll tell you everything that we've learned and the best practices that we think we have. And then we started inviting other schools to share theirs. And then we took it on the road. So. Um, this year it was supposed to be in Nashville, but it's going virtual. But it's a it's a chance for off 50, the map, right? Off the map. Off the map. Uh -huh. We're doing it off the map, and we have uh, 15 great educational leaders and uh, practitioners um, leading 34 uh, sessions, breakouts in the areas of leadership and vision, curriculum and supervision, um, marketing and uh, finance, and then finally uh, student leadership and spiritual development. So. The whole leadership team, we find that you send a leader off to a conference, they come back with all these ideas and everybody kind of rolls their eyes like, what's he doing now? But you come back with a team that all heard the same thing and there's momentum in that. And those people have gone back. I think, you know, I, I told you the change that that leader was able to do by going back and inspiring his teachers and keeping his best teachers. So they come back with um, best practices in those four uh, tracks and um, we do it every year. We invite uh, different people to share. If people have best practices, we love to hear about them. 
And um, we're going to do it hopefully live next year back in Wheaton. But this year it's going to be uh, virtual. In fact, that'll give an app. We'll find out maybe more people can participate virtually than could have shown up in Nashville. But again, I love the concept best practices because you're not telling people how to run their school. You're just sharing something you do. And if it can help them, great. If they can modify it or take it and use it in any way, that's a great model for, for I think, schools sharing with other schools and growing together. You know, the other thing that I love is, you know, if you're a new school head and you're sitting at a table or you're in a virtual session with, uh, you know, this seasoned school leader, you can pick up a mentor very easily in the Christian school space. That was another great uh, thing. Yeah, we tried to we tried to get affinity groups because a small group, uh, small school rather, uh, principals dealing with different things than a large school principals dealing with and the specializations and the generalization. So it was great. And some of the biggest value was getting people, we're going to try virtually to put people together um, by their affinity groups this summer. And uh, again, just to connect them with someone else in, that's sharing their life uh, experiences and somebody they can bounce these things off of has been, has been a great, uh, great part of the conference. Monroe, you got anything else for the good of the order? Well, you know, I'm I'm a, I'm a story guy, uh, so I I would just love to know if you know during your your tenure uh, as head of school at Wheaton Academy and the way you transformed that school. I'm wondering if there's one story that kind of sticks out in your mind as, hey, this was something where we were teetering on the edge. We saw God worked. We saw people come together, and it and it just really resulted in in transformation there. Well. Um, I, I can tell you some developmental stories where God just come, came in in remarkable ways financially and, and you know, answered prayer. But a story I love to tell um, because it really is all God is when we were a bad school. We were teetering. We declining enrollment, growing deficits, crumbling buildings, condemned by the fire marshal. I mean, <laughs> we were the we were the guy in the gutter at the bottom. And um, so we the first thing we had to do is just get people to want to come to our school. So we thought about what would make it fun to come to school. Now, that, that's not very high-minded pedagogy, but we said, you know, how about a coffee hour? Let's have a coffee hour and we'll let them chew gum and we'll just, you know, what, can, what will make this a cool place to go to? This is early 90s. And sure enough, the kids love a coffee hour, you know, and they could have their beverages with them in class and kind of pre, uh, uh, we were um, predating Starbucks there a little bit. Absolutely. But the kids loved it, and we kind of kept, we went with this, and what we discovered um, was we were treating our kids like adults. We were treating these adolescents like adults, and all of a sudden, they started acting like adults. And we were able, the culture was able to mature in a way that was totally unlike any high school I'd gone to, or, I mean, it was different. It was the parent, the teachers, and the students were peers. There was mutual respect, and it it was amazing. And then, how we often learn our spiritual lessons. I look backwards, and biblically, when do you become an adult? When's bar mitzvah? Yeah, thirteen. Thirteen. Yep. You were a young adult in the biblical world at thirteen. You were to apprentice. You were a young adult, and you were supposed to be practicing being an adult. What have we done in our culture today? We invented the word teenager in 1943. The Reader's Digest came up with it. We said, you're not old enough to be an adult. You're too young, but you're wow. too old to be a child. So we'll, we'll make you this teenager and we'll spread out your adolescence and you can act like a goof. If you remember um, 
Um, back to the future. Remember the principal went around with a baseball bat? Oh yeah. You know, they were just, they were 16 and 18 year olds acting like eight and 10 year olds, prolonged adolescence. All of a sudden we treated our 13, 14, 15 year olds like adults and they acted like it. Kids, our number one recruiting tool is have someone shadow in our school. When I they go home, I hear the stories. They said, mom and dad, you won't understand what it's like there. The teachers treat the kids like they're equals. The kids treat the teachers they know their names, they, they care about them. I can get choked up about this, but the culture is an adult culture and that's where the kids blossom spiritually, emotionally, relationally. And we stumbled into it because we were so desperate. We were off the map 30 years ago. And we said, we just got to get kids into the school. And from that, we learned things that worked. And now we say it's a mature culture. We admit kids, only kids that want to be part of that culture. They don't even have to be Christians but they have to want to be that part of that culture. We have wonderful stories of redemption, of kids who are attracted to that culture, mature and find Christ. But we won't take that Christian kid that needs a reform school. They will destroy your school. So it's, it's a, we, we've learned what a uh, mission appropriate student, a mission appropriate family is, and we've built a culture that is transformational. And uh, again, something Christian schools can do that uh, unfortunately our, our public school counterparts couldn't do if they wanted. I think that circles back to your evaluation point about how you treat your faculty. If you yep. treat your faculty as peers with respect and saying, hey, part of the evaluation process is being adult. This is the real world. This is business. Me coming in to see you and, and, and you sharing your ideas with me and where you think you should be on this, uh, not a scale, but based on your achievement. Um, you know, that, that is real world adulthood, like you're treating the students versus yeah. some kind of passive aggressive, I'm going to come in and see you. I'm not going to, I didn't make it. it. You weren't a priority for me today. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, God's, God's shown up in wonderful ways if we're willing to serve him and, and, uh, and go where he wants us to go. So, amen. I want to share those best practices with many people as I can. All right. Well, I hope you, uh, we want to thank you very much for being on this. We are looking forward to the best practices conference. And uh, just as a side, I uh, love enjoying the last dance. You mentioned you were enjoying the last dance. Any leadership lessons you're picking up from Michael Jordan in the last dance, watching that on ESPN? Oh, you obviously find the strength of focus. I mean, he had one focus, and uh, that's what makes you the greatest of all time. Um, yeah, I'd love to see it have channeled to, to being like Christ and leading people to Christ, but it, it does show you the power of focus. And if we can focus um, to change young lives, the, the vision he, you know, he had for his focus I mean, and his achievement was because he was single-minded. And um, if we could just be single-minded on, you know, how do we help young people conform to the image of Christ? I mean, uh, amazing things can be accomplished with, with that kind of focus. And I, I think it's inspirational just to see somebody accomplish at high levels. And I, I think we can apply that to our schools that we can accomplish at high levels. Our schools can be great places of learning and life uh, transformation and will make a difference for a lifetime for our young people. Amen. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, thank you. This has been enjoyable. I really enjoyed our conversation and I, I'm glad I didn't throw Monroe with my music uh, answers. He, he, he oh, was, oh, listen. Right I'm there with me. 
Well, well, you know, I, I may I may look weird, but hey, I love all kinds of music. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, a, I'm eclectic. That's probably why I like all kinds of kids. Yeah, there you go. I uh, really enjoyed talking to you. Great. Okay, thank you, guys. If you thought today's episode was enlightening, please pass the word. The Classroom and Culture Show can be heard on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts. Also, to become a regular listener and receive additional info, please subscribe on your favorite platform today. That's Classroom and Culture from Epic Media Partners. Thanks.